Eight children in the average class in the UK will leave primary school unable to read well. For just two 30-minute sessions a week for six weeks, you could read with a child online and help them discover a love of reading. There are over 300 5 to 10-year-olds waiting to read with a bookmark volunteer. Could you give the gift of reading this Christmas? Go to www.bookmarkreading.org volunteer to give them the gift that will unwrap their future. Hi, and thank you for clicking to listen to this episode. Before we get stuck in, I wanted to let you know that we have a free event coming up on returning from maternity leave, where our previous Leaders with Babies fellows, all parents who've returned to work um, from maternity leave or share parental leave or adoption leave, share what has worked for them with the hope of it being really helpful to other parents who are about to return from maternity leave or have just done so. If you know someone who could benefit, then please let them know that they can sign up on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash events. And as you know, the applications for the Leaders Plus Cross Sector Fellowship are open now. Every year, lots of our podcast listeners join the fellowship and I really enjoy getting to know some of you better and interact with you and see that you're actual people. You'll get a senior leader mentor, a really awesome group of peers, structured career development support, and very importantly, time to think about what you want in your career and family life and how to get there. If you want to get involved, go to leadersplus.org.uk so you can find all the info there. Let's get stuck into the episode. Now, as we're going through the busyness of life, right, you're raising three children. I've got a book coming out that I was busy writing a book. My husband was like carrying the load for those seven months. My daughter's six and a half. It's a busy, busy life. Like, how can we possibly find more time to volunteer? But the thing that I took away, one of the two things from all of the social entrepreneurs that I interviewed that were doing positive work in the world, they all had volunteering or service modeled in their home. So... If you care about wanting to create a better world, if you care about wanting your children to recognize any privilege they may have or this notion of giving back to society, it can start in small ways. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. I'm Felina Hefti and I believe absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And this can lead to gender inequality at the top and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations and our world. I want us all together to change this. And in fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible where you make decisions that make our world better. Beyond the podcast, I'm also the CEO and founder of the award-winning social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, if you want to join our free events, we've got one coming up about returning to work in January, or if you want to find out about our world-class career development program, our fellowship programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. Today's guest is Anita Novak. We talk about the research behind why empathy in the workplace matters and why empathy isn't just touchy-feely stuff, but it really makes a difference, not just to workplace deliverables, but also to your own happiness and well-being. Enjoy the conversation. Sure. So I teach at McGill. I teach courses like leadership, social entrepreneurship, and ethics in management. 
And I've been teaching for about 10 years. I'm the author of a book called Purposeful Empathy, Tapping Our Hidden Superpower for Personal, Organizational, and Social Change. I have a PhD in education, and I absolutely love mentoring the next generation of change makers. In terms of my family, I'm married to a man from Georgia, Tbilisi, Georgia, who is now Canadian, and we together have a six and a half year old daughter named Annika. Mm, that's a great age. My eldest is six as well. So it's the age when they start becoming quite interesting conversation partners, I find. I totally agree. And can you tell me one thing that you used to assume about combining a big career with young children that you don't assume anymore? That I could still do as much work as I wanted in the 24 hours. And I realized that I need to get a lot more support in order for me to still deliver the work at the rate that I want to deliver it, but also be present for my daughter and my husband. So I had her very late in life. I met my husband when I was 40 and I had her when I was 42. So I had 20 years of being able to work consistently at a pace of, you know, kind of nonstop. And that's really changed over the last few years. I think a lot of listeners will be able to empathize with that. When did you first get interested in the topic of empathy? You're now an empathy expert. Was it always something on top of your horizon or was there a key moment when you started getting interested? No, it's a great story. And it gives me the chance always to thank my thesis advisor. So I was doing my PhD at McGill. My advisor's name is Michael Hexman. And I finished four years. I was moonlighting the whole time I was doing my studies. I had a professional job as a fundraiser and I was actually headhunted to join a new organization. And I said to my advisor midway through my PhD that I was going to take a year off so that I could focus on my professional career. And he was very adamant that I shouldn't take that year off. He said, that's where all the attrition happens. You'll never finish. And I said, no, no, I plan to finish. And he said, well, look, why don't you come see me in six months if you're certain you want to take this time off? So I get into his office. This would place us in March of 2008. And that summer, I was going to Rwanda with my sister to help a local nonprofit organization called Tuba Humorize launch a microfinance project. And I was very excited about that trip. And so I'm in his office. We're chit-chatting. I have no agenda. And after he hears about my summer plans, he says to me, I want you to completely change your thesis topic. And I was stunned. And he said, look, I just heard you talk about this trip you're planning to Kigali and you lit up like a Christmas tree. And he said, I just don't think you're that passionate about your topic. So he gave me advice. He said, go to the drawer or the folder or the box that you have at home that you stuff stuff into and you don't pay attention when you're doing it. He goes, go find that thing and explore what you're really passionate about. And I was so incensed by this in the moment. I walked out of his office. I was like, how dare he question what I'm passionate about? And he said, you know, contact me in two, three months when you've discovered what it is you're really passionate about. And I was like, I'm not planning to change my thesis topic. Two weeks later, after I got over my ego and I got curious, I was like, I wonder if I have a box or a folder or a file. And sure enough, I have this old-fashioned black two-drawer metal filing cabinet. And I opened it up and I started skimming through all of my taxes and my employment contracts and all sorts of stuff. I came across a file that was labeled in my own handwriting, miscellaneous. And I never knew that I had this folder, at least not consciously. And I opened up, spread out all the contents on the dining room table. 
and I was looking at, you know, a stub from a talk that I attended and newspaper clippings and none of it made sense. There was no rhyme or reason until I came across a little article about a boy in Ontario that went to school. He was in elementary school. He went to school in Ontario and he didn't wear shoes for a whole week. He chose not to wear shoes for an entire week because he'd learned about global poverty and he found out that some children don't have shoes to go to school. So he wanted to know what that felt like. He wanted to empathize and he wanted to educate his classmates and do a little fundraiser. And that's the little clipping that made me see the common thread across all the other stuff on my table. That I was attracted naturally to people who were creating positive change in the world in one shape or form or other. I was agnostic to whether they were working on climate change or homelessness or mental health or poverty reduction. I was just attracted to these change makers. And I didn't realize there was this whole vocabulary and whole vocation of social entrepreneurs and social innovators. So I fell into it quite by luck. And when I did my research, I interviewed dozens and dozens of social entrepreneurs to understand why they do the work that they do. And all of them had two things in common. One was that service was modeled in their home. So their parents volunteered and took them out to volunteer, which I found quite interesting. And the second thing is that they all felt this huge empathy for a group of people that were either marginalized or exploited or disenfranchised in some way and could not turn a blind eye. So my research in the faculty of education was to develop a pedagogy of what I called empathic action. So acting on the empathy. And that has been the current that's animated the last 10 years of my life. How can we leverage empathy on purpose for personal, organizational, and social change? Interesting. So my interest in this comes from, obviously, from working parents who are quite often made to fit into a system that is not designed to be empathetic to them at all. So even the fact that school in the UK often finishes at 3, 3.30, work tends to finish at 5 or 6 o'clock. So how are you going to bridge that? And then how are you going to, your managers are not necessarily set up to automatically empathize with those needs when the child is sick and nursery calls, you need to pick them up right now and your other half is across the country. So when I saw that you were studying empathy, I found that really fascinating. And there's such a, I think as a social entrepreneur, I love what you're describing around empathy for as a characteristic of social entrepreneurs, but also this idea of having organizations and people that are empathetic to parents or to people with different needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the reason why I put a strong emphasis on purposeful empathy is that we as humans are born with the innate capacity to empathize in two different ways. And this is important to understand. So one way that we empathize is through affect, okay, where we feel what someone else is feeling. So if we are, you know, the best way to describe it is if you're listening to a horror movie and the music is scary, you tend to be a little bit scared. And if you turn the volume all the way down, we're not scared as much anymore. So our mirror neurons are firing all the time in resonance with the stimulus we come across. If we see a picture of a child that's like smiling, our faces turn up, our cheekbones go up naturally as a result of our mirror neurons firing. And if we change that image to a kid who's crying and, you know, and looks like the child is really sad or distressed, those cheekbones will naturally drop unless you're an outlier and you're a psychopath. That's a different story. But affective empathy happens to us. We don't control it. Cognitive empathy, on the other hand, is something we do control. So cognitive empathy, as it implies by the name, is has to do with our brain, right? Our neocortex, the most advanced part of our brain that allows us to reason. 
And so when we're listening to someone tell a story, we're imagining how that might be for that person, or sometimes we're projecting how it might feel for us in their circumstance. And that's utilizing cognitive empathy. And I think cognitive empathy is more powerful because we have the choice about whether or not we're going to empathize. When I started to learn about the neuroscience of empathy and how we can actually change our brains, known as neuroplasticity, just by having different thoughts and by behaving in different ways, I started to experiment quite a bit. So I have this one memory, a very strong memory that I share often to make the point. I was in a long lineup this more than 10 years ago before we had mobile phones attached to our hands that could easily distract us when we're in a queue. I was in a long lineup at a FedEx counter in December during the holiday season rush. And it took me 30 minutes to get to the counter because the lineup was so long. And the woman who greeted me was miserable and nasty and rude. I mean, unnecessarily rude. And my immediate reaction was frustration. And I wanted to just like call her out on her really rude behavior. And I took like a nanosecond pause to realize this is a moment I could practice empathy. So I looked at her and I asked her very sincerely, are you okay? And she took a moment to discern whether I was being sarcastic or if I was being earnest. And she sensed that I was being sincere. And she looked at me and she said, my son is at home with a fever. I've worked double shifts for two weeks straight. I'm starting to get sick myself. It's 3 p.m. I haven't had a lunch break. I'm exhausted. And she was crying. And I remember we reached across the counter and we were holding hands and she was crying. And I just held the space for her. And I went to get to her mint tea from the food court, came back. We had a pleasant conversation. She sent my package with efficiency and grace. And what I remember about her and that experience is that we've all been faced with those circumstances. We've either been the rude one or we've been treated by somebody rudely. And it just takes that tiny veneer to pierce with a degree of empathy for our full humanity to show up. And we live in a world that is constantly putting us under stress, where we're spread too thin, we're overwhelmed. The pandemic did a total number on us, right? I mean, it was nothing but constant change and juggling and uncertainty and all of that. And our brain actually can't be in a state of empathy and stress or overwhelm at the same time. So when we're stressed and when we're anxious, we've got hormones that are flooding our bodies that are stress hormones, okay? And they cause a bunch of inflammation. Cortisol is the big one that we all know. When that's flowing through us, we're triggered and it's almost impossible for us to extend empathy. And we're in circumstances all the time where we're expected to show empathy to our staff members or a family member or a partner or whatever. And when we're stressed, we can't, our brains can't do it. So there's a lot of things that I could share about how to kind of move our brains into a place where we have access to more empathy. But one of the simple ones is the bridge of gratitude, that just a simple act of thinking about something that we're grateful for and sitting with that for even 10 or 20 or 30 seconds will enable the flood of hormones to change, where serotonin and oxytocin and all of the feel-good hormones couldn't replace the bad hormones. And then we can be in a place of presence to listen. But at work, when we are busy with emails and KPIs and demands on our time and all the stresses, it's almost impossible. We're in a meeting, there's like something going on, we're triggered all the time. So 
There's such a need. We're in a crisis right now. I call it, we're like living in the era of a massive collective empathy deficit. We are so hungry for empathy in our workplaces and in our communities and in our personal lives. And it's so easy to access empathy if we choose to be intentional about it. And it so benefits us. You know, there's neuroscientists that have studied the pleasure and reward centers of our brain and what lights up in our brain when we're eating delicious food, when we are regular meditators, when we're high on psychedelics. And even I try to imagine how they study this, but how they know the post-coital bliss, how they study that, but our brains light up the same pleasure and reward centers as do when we are extending empathy. When we are an empathic embrace with someone we are in emotional resonance with someone, we are feeling emotional contagion and connection and affinity with someone, the brain lights up the same pleasure and reward centers. And so it's good for us. So, I mean, I think back to when I was on my maternity leave, because we started there with your question, Canada has a robust maternity leave policy, and it's now shared, mat leave and pat leave, you have a total of 12 months, so it's a year that you can share And I took the full 12 months and I went abroad with my husband as circumstance would have it. We lived in the Dominican Republic. I was writing my book. My husband was painting. And that, you know, public policy provides an opening for families to gel in a way that, you know, when you're working full time doesn't allow it. I can't even understand the American go back to work after two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. I mean, it's completely insane. What kind of you know, we apparently care about families and well-being of children and the next generation and then have a policy like that. So again, and I feel like I'm on a bit of a monologue here, but we can engage in purposeful empathy, even through our public policies and maternity leave and all of the policies that exist for work-life balance, you know, days off when necessary, working from home, all the flexibility to live a three-dimensional life Companies have to step up if they want to have an engaged workforce and keep great talent and attract great talent. For me now, it is a non-negotiable KPI. It must be part of the DNA and the culture of a company to have empathy in the workplace. So obviously, as you'd expect, this really resonates with me and I'm sold on the ideas that you share. But I'm sure that there will be people who are in senior roles listening whom I think, well, actually... It sounds all a bit touchy-feeling and it's not really important. What's your reaction to that? How do you convince the cynics? Yeah. So for nearly six years, every single day without missing a day, I have published a daily empathy post. And as you can imagine, over the last two years, I have found an enormous amount of resources to post coming from the corporate world. It's like the corporate world figured out after the BLM post George Floyd murder, after the Me Too movement, given pandemic, like the corporate world has kind of figured out that this is important. And so now I do a lot of corporate talks, but I'm often asked the question by senior executives saying, but we're a high performance culture. And this whole empathy thing sounds really lovely, but it sounds also time consuming and touchy-feely, vulnerable, all this, you know, feel-good stuff, but like we're high performance. And I say to them, I'm like, if you are high performance, you need empathy in your workplace. And here's why. 
So I'm going to share a few statistics. This is all sourced from credible research, and I'm happy to share links so you can include them in your program description if you'd like. But here's some key stats, okay? 78%, so that's like four out of five, employees would work longer hours if they knew their employer cared about them. Okay, four out of five would work longer hours. It means like they would contribute more to their organizational success if they knew the organization cared about them. Another four out of five would consider leaving their organization for one that they perceived more empathic. And we saw that through the great resignation. People left in droves, okay? So the cost to hire, retain employees is expensive and the turnover is expensive and the absenteeism is expensive and the presenteeism is expensive, right? Pre-pandemic, there's the Society for Human Resource Management in the States that calculated toxic workplaces cost of the American employers $223 billion over the past five years. And that was pre-pandemic. So it is expensive to have toxic workplaces because you have to mediate conflict resolution. There's all sorts of dysfunctions that happen. A couple more stats. 62% of workers believe empathy is critical for business success. So we all kind of know it. We know it intuitively, but only 20% think it's rewarded at work, which is such a strange delta. We all know it's important, but only 20% think it's rewarded at work. And then the most interesting stat I find is 84% of CEOs believe that empathy drives better business outcomes, but seven out of 10 fear that they'd be less respected if they showed it at work. Mm, isn't that interesting? Mm, what an interesting thing of, I think it's fascinating about the typical ideal leader. Empathy does not feature on your image, your traditional image of, of a leader, which often if you picture, if you ask people to picture a leader, it's a male standing on a hill by himself and the empathy is, is not there. It's so interesting that they're scared to show empathy. It's a stereotype that we have to just kind of transcend. We have to break through that because we're all human beings. So if I share the biological history of humanity, right? People who have studied the evolution of humanity have said around 40,000 years ago, there were Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. They died out. A few other large brain mammals died out and Homo sapiens kept thriving and we've survived as a species and we've kept thriving thanks to our capacity to empathize. And the way they make that case is they are able to document that the whites of our eyes grew. So we are the mammals on, that have walked the planet with the largest whites of our eyes. And that's intentional so we can read each other's eye expressions. And we drop the facial hair on our face the most because we needed to read each other's facial cues. And all of our body language was in unison. We collaborated in order to work together collaboratively and understand each other. And people who were working with too much selfish instincts were ostracized and literally left to die out in the cold where people who worked together collaboratively and understood each other and read each other and were able to empathize, we survived as a clan, as a group. So it's part of our culture and part of our DNA to be empathic. And we have lost that because we're living in a society that values independence. And, you know, the pandemic brought it home, of course, because we were living lives of social isolation. But anyways, it was happening. There's so many single dwelling homes. There's not multidimensional, multi-generational homes anymore. We don't live as a village, right? We live in our own little enclaves. We live in buildings where we don't know our neighbors. We live in houses we don't know our neighbors, 
right? So we we have this tendency in our society to like value what we can do on our own as opposed to like value what we can do together. And that's a real miss. It's a miss for us on a social level and it's a miss for us on a personal level, which is why I think we've seen this terrible rise in mental health issues across the board, anywhere you look on the planet at all levels of age, we've seen rates of depression and anxiety and self-harm and uh, substance abuse and suicide and domestic violence all on the rise. And I think we're living in a very ill society right now. It's engineered for us not to flourish and it's engineered for us to be stressed out all the time. And therefore we have very little capacity to extend empathy. And again, that's why we have to choose to be empathic on purpose. And it kind of sounds like another to-do on our list of to-dos, but if you really give yourself permission to realize how helpful it is to us to flourish as humans, then it's a gift, it's an opportunity. Eight children in the average class in the UK will leave primary school unable to read well. For just two 30-minute sessions a week for six weeks, you could read with a child online and help them discover a love of reading. There are over 300 five to 10-year-olds waiting to read with a bookmark volunteer. Could you give the gift of reading this Christmas? Go to www.bookmarkreading.org volunteer to give them the gift that will unwrap their future. Absolutely. And I think there's a moral imperative as well, of course. I want to come back to the empathy in the workplace. You made a really compelling case that it is good for business to foster empathy. One thing I hear a lot is that it really depends on which line managers you get, whether your line manager is empathetic or not. And usually when people tell me in confidence that they are thinking of leaving, it's usually because of the line manager. Mm-hmm. And they have very little control once they're in the organization who their line manager is. Do you have any advice for organizations how to get consistent empathy? Because there's always these one or two people in an organization who are amazing and who are just really get it and empathize with the needs of working parents who will, when push comes to shove in those difficult moments, they will back them when nursery closes with day's notice, they will be there for them. But not everyone has the confidence to be empathetic when it counts. What's your reflection about having really consistent empathy from every single line manager, not just the ones that have it? Well, it certainly needs to be baked into the culture from top to bottom, and it needs to be incentivized, and it needs to be monitored, and it needs to be celebrated within the workplace. And then there are always these outliers who tend to be high performers and also very toxic, either micromanagers or communicate in a way that is just inappropriate in this day and age. And I learned something recently from an equine coach. So I don't know if you're familiar with equine coaching at all, but I had only learned about this a few weeks ago. And I was introduced to an equine coach and had the opportunity to spend a few hours on a farm working with horses as the teachers. And she was the facilitator. Her name is Anouk Laurie. And she has been studying horses for over a decade now and working with leaders and teams and shared with me that horses are an interesting creature to study from a biomimicry perspective because they have a lot to teach leaders and teams. The first thing she taught me was that horses, wherever they are on the planet, whatever species of horses we're talking about, they work as herds. They live in herds. And they are not predatory animals. They are prey animals. So they're very intuitive to their environment. And they're highly attuned to what's going on because they are prey animals. 
And they, as herds, live in a way that maximizes each individual's horse's flourishing and decrease the amount of resources they expend while maximizing their flourishing. So if you think about like a team working, you want to maximize the flourishing of each individual in that team because ultimately that aggregately elevates the flourishing of the group, but you don't want to expend energy doing it. You want to save as much energy as possible. And she shared with me that once in a while, there is a horse that is causing friction in the herd. And it is up to the leadership. There's always within any herd, there's always sort of archetypes, different roles, and there's always a leader, okay, a leader of a herd. And it's the leader's job to look and see whether or not a member of that herd is actually costing the herd itself problems. And if that is the case, if the well-being of the herd is dropping because of one member, that member should be ostracized. So that member is meant to be somewhere else, meant to be, it's not so much a punishment, it's like, go be who you need to be elsewhere, okay, so that the herd can flourish. So I think there needs to be within any organization an understanding that unacceptable behavior is not permitted, like no exceptions to the rule, off you go. And then that needs to be a norm. And then it also needs to be a normative that leaders who show great empathy get promoted Mm -hmm. and provide more space within the organization and get rewarded. That kind of behavior needs to be rewarded. So that's something that I would say about that. In terms of your own interpersonal relationship with a toxic boss, That's a really tough one. (laughs) I've turned to Brené Brown's work a lot. I've had the experience of working with a toxic boss for nearly two years. And what it does to you, at least in my case, is that it makes you feel really small. It really kind of strips away your, your confidence and your feeling of capacity. It gives you sleepless nights. It gives you grinding teeth. It gives you mental health issues. I mean, it becomes like a chronic mental health shadow in your life. It's very, very taxing. And ultimately, I think if it gets too bad, you do have to leave. You have to bring it to the attention of superiors so that, you know, something can be dealt with within the organization, but otherwise you need to make a clean break for your own sanity and your own well-being. And it's tough to make that decision because of the macroeconomic circumstances of I've got a mortgage and two kids and what if I don't get a job or, you know, all of that. But then again, you have to look at your life a little bit holistically. The same woman that I just finished talking about, she has a really interesting story, backstory, born in Belgium and was very successful as a C-suite executive. So was her husband. So they both worked very long hours trying to raise a pair of twins. And the kids were about 11 years old when she realized how empty her life was and how she'd been working so hard, but like was losing personal purpose and feeling like... She didn't recognize herself and neither did her husband. And so the two of them started having a conversation about like, well, what are we going to do to change this? And it was around that time that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she looks back at that diagnosis with a certain degree of gratitude because that was like what cemented the decision. We got to change the way we're living our lives. And so she went through her treatment and the couple decided to uproot their family, change everything about their lives and move to Canada. So she's now in Canada, north of Montreal. And she finished her first treatment and she was about to start another form of treatment with the doctors, but her move date came and her doctor said, well, you can't move. Like you got to do this other preemptive preventative treatment. And she's like, I won't need it because I'm going to be well in my new life. 
And so she moved and she became an equine coach as a result of this move. And she looks back on the totality of her decisions and her career and realizes that if she had kept going on this track of feeling ever more sick and alienated from her life, she would have been sick and and possibly might have died. And I think we shouldn't wait until illness. Mm -hmm. We should wait till the inner voice speaks to us and says, we got to make some changes. I agree. I agree. And I think it's a really heartwarming story, but also we need to, I'm not a medical expert, but I think it's really important if anyone who's listening is experiencing a serious illness that, that obviously, you know, it's not your fault for the choices that you make in, in life in, in that sense. But it sounds like it was a really positive story for her. I'm just wanting to come back to the people who are, I guess to people who might be listening, who would like to bring more empathy into their lives with not just those small daily action, but actually bigger things like volunteering. And you alluded to that, that that can be a way of bringing empathy in your life. Do you have any reflections about, I mean, practically, I used to volunteer, I have to say right now with three kids with aged six, four, one, I'm not doing it anymore because I just need a bit of room to breathe. I want to do it again later. Do you volunteer at the moment? Is there something that you can fit in practically in your life with young children? Yeah, I'd love to talk about three different things at three different levels of scale in terms of practicing empathy. So one is a really simple exercise that sounds a little bit, you know, woo-woo on first glance, but I do it with all of my classes and, you know, whenever I do facilitation of a workshop And it takes a little bit of vulnerability initially, but there's never been an exception that people afterwards in the debrief share how positive the experience was. And that is the simple act of eye gazing. So you can sit together with your kid, your child, your children, your spouse, a colleague at work, a friend, somebody in your book club, doesn't matter. And you set a timer for 30 seconds on your phone and you sit facing each other with your feet planted on the ground so you don't cross your legs. Your hands are in an open position, palms up on your lap. So you're in this open stance and you just eye gaze. That's so not staring at each other. It's just simply looking at each other, eye gazing. And the only, only rule in this eye gazing exercise is no talking. So sometimes there's giggles that flood through and sort of a bunch of, you know, awkward moments, but you just eye gaze. And after that 30 seconds, you chit chat for a bit, and then you set the timer for 90 seconds. So the totality is a two minute exercise. But what ends up happening is as you're doing the eye gazing in the longer segment, people start to breathe in the same speed. Our breathing starts to calibrate and we start to communicate with our eyes and our face starts to soften and we start to see each other and we start to feel seen. And the experience is really, really a beautiful opportunity for empathy to be expressed. And there's researchers who have studied the outcome of a two-minute eye gazing on couples who have to make a big decision. And those who do practice it have a much better outcome than those who don't. So if you have a big decision to make or if you have an important conversation, to just simply do a two-minute eye gazing exercise. And this can be done in the workplace and it can be done at home. So that's one exercise. At a much higher scale, you mentioned the idea of volunteering. And there is a lot to be said about that. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'll probably recall from your like intro to psych class, talked about baseline needs being met, you know, food, shelter, all of that. And then higher order needs being met, like a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. That the 
pinnacle triangle, the top of the triangle is what he called self-actualization, right? That as human beings, as we self-actualize, we achieve our full potential on earth. It wasn't until late, late, late in his life, just before he died, that he started writing new content and actually acknowledging how limited his own theory was. And he came to the conclusion that self-actualization is not the apex of human achievement, but in fact, what we should aim for is self-transcendence, this idea of serving something greater than ourselves. Now, as we're going through the busyness of life, right, you're raising three children. I've got a book coming out that I was busy writing a book. My husband was like carrying the load for those seven months. My daughter's six and a half. It's a busy, busy life. Like, how can we possibly find more time to volunteer? But the thing that I took away, one of the two things from all of the social entrepreneurs that I interviewed that were doing positive work in the world, they all had volunteering or service modeled in their home. So if you care about wanting to create a better world, if you care about wanting your children to recognize any privilege they may have or this notion of giving back to society, it can start in small ways. It can start by volunteering as a family in a soup kitchen. It can start by going around your block and collecting cans and donating it to a food drive. It can start in really small ways. I remember growing up, my sisters and I donated money to the Telethon of Stars, it was called. It was a 24-hour telethon where, you know, it was old-fashioned landlines. People could call in and make donations. And the money that was being raised was going to the two children's hospitals. And my mom wanted to expose us to this because we were all healthy kids. And she's like, now we're going to give back to kids who have who are sick in the hospital. And we went around with cans and we collected coins and then we got a little bit better year after year and we started to go outside grocery stores and we collect coins from, you know, people at the end of their shopping journey. And we would bring it down to the Telethon of Stars. And we did that for nine consecutive years. And I cannot tell you how formative that was for me in terms of this idea of it can't just be about me. There must be places where we can give back. And so, you know, there's probably a volunteer center or bureau in your city. You can just call or go onto the website and you can scan through all the different volunteering opportunities or just post onto Facebook. Like, where can I volunteer? I only have one hour a week or I only have one hour a month, but there's always a need and there's always an opportunity. And I think it's a really great way to actually bond as a family. There's research that shows that families who do service work together have a family culture where there's less friction at home, there's better communication, more open conversation. So lots of pluses. I'm smiling because so today, is, as we're recording, this is the 1st of December. So for those in the Christian culture, the 1st of Advent. And my kids are obviously very excited about the chocolate that the inevitable Advent calendar involves. And I, I've devised a system where if we do something nice as a family for someone else, then they'll get a star and then per star, they will get a pound, which they can then donate at the end of Advent. So that's the plan. And I'm going to try really hard to make it work and actually motivate them to do something. We'll see. It might be crazy and it might definitely not work because actually they just don't want to do anything nice for anybody else. But it's really nice to hear that my gut feeling of it would be nice to do something nice for other people and model that, that that has a scientific 
basis. So wish me luck. They might all fail into the water, quite possibly. I love that idea. I love that idea. That's a fantastic idea. And it's the first of December here on the other side of the Atlantic. And Annika has had her chocolate this morning, but there's no reason why I couldn't introduce that same plan. <laughs> so let's hold each other accountable. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds great. I'm interested. So you, you've obviously spent the last few years of your research life looking at empathy. Is there a really common misconception that people think when they think of empathy that you would like to clear up? Yeah, there are words that are used as synonyms. So pity, sympathy, compassion, empathy, those are all treated, you know, as if they were the same thing. They all have very different etymological roots, and they do mean something different. So I won't go into the etymology, that'd be super boring. But I will share that I put them on this continuum. And I think this is worth sharing. So pity is really different than empathy. When you pity someone, there is power asymmetry embedded in the relationship. So it sounds like, oh, you poor person. So sometimes foreign aid and sometimes philanthropy is like predicated on a pity paradigm. Oh, you poor person. And that's nothing like empathy. Sympathy is having sympathy for someone like, I feel badly that you're going through this, right? There's a sense of like, oh, I'm really sorry that you're going through this. That's what sympathy sounds like. Empathy is, I feel with you. I feel with you. I'm holding the space and I'm feeling with you. And empathy, I think, is a really powerful human emotion. I think it's the second most powerful human emotion, second only to love. So love is the primary most powerful emotional force we have. Second is empathy. And that is because empathy is what unites us in our common humanity. So we are all born, we all die, we all experience things in life in common, whether that's love, rejection, joy, disappointment, sadness, confusion, all these human emotions. And empathy is what unites us in that common humanity. There's one important caveat, though, is that we don't deny lived experience. So even though you and I might have the same experience of raising a six and a half year old daughter or child, you have two more. So I really don't know what it's like to be a mom of a six and a half year old in your world because you have two more, right? So everybody has common ground and that's what makes empathy so powerful, but we also have different lived experiences. So we can't really project what we think somebody's going through with accuracy because we really don't. Very true. And you mentioned about that difference between pity and empathy, which is very interesting. Quite a lot of people listening to this are also in caring roles. So for example, doctors, and there's an issue around maybe having too much empathy, or I'm not sure if I'm using the right word here. How do you deal with looking after yourself while still having empathy? I mean, to be honest, I sometimes don't watch the news because, because I just, there's a limit to how much emotional energy I want to expend to hearing all the bad things. Yeah. I couldn't write a book without devoting an entire chapter to anybody who's in a profession that calls upon empathy on a daily. So I call them our empathy superheroes. That's everybody who works in healthcare, educators, humanitarians, social entrepreneurs, psychologists, social workers, anybody who is part of their job description is to tend for other people are empathy superheroes in my mind. And they're all at risk of compassion and empathy fatigue. And that is that they expend so much energy caring for others that they risk burning out themselves and having no more access to empathy because they are, have just, you know, the batteries run dry. 
So for people who have empathy fatigue, and that includes parents, where they're constantly caring for children, especially children with any disability or any learning disability at all, or different siblings, and just all the energy that goes on in a household management, there's an absolute need to recharge your own batteries in order to be able to empathize for the next day. And that means knowing what does charge your batteries. So maybe it's taking a bath, maybe it's calling a friend, maybe it's going for a walk. There's something out of Japan called Shinrin-yuku, which is, translates into forest bathing. And there's loads of research that's coming out about how healing it is to be in nature. And our cities are not designed for being out breathing nature, right? But the idea of going for a walk in nature is so important. So we expect so much from those empathy superheroes. And I think it's really important that the general public pays an extra dose of kindness to all those folks who are on the front lines of empathy all the time. Absolutely. We're coming towards the end of our podcast. And I was wondering where people could find out more about you, your work. You just mentioned you're writing a book as well. Sure. So my website is a simple place, anitanovak.com. I have a podcast and YouTube series. If you just search for it on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, it's called Purposeful Empathy. And of course, the book is already available for pre-order on Amazon called Purposeful Empathy. So I'm also on LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook and Instagram. So would be delighted to hear from any of your listeners. Fantastic. And to leave us with something practical to implement, if someone hears you speak and wants to implement a little bit of empathy this week, but doesn't have had more than five minutes, what would be one or two things they could try? Something so simple, especially since we're in the season of maybe buying gifts for the holidays. If somebody wears a name tag, greet them by their name and let them know that you appreciate their service. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anita. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Verena. Me too. I hope this podcast has been useful to you, has given you new food for thoughts and maybe some new ideas. And if you'd like to get further involved, you could do that, for example, by joining our fellowship program. It's a really awesome career development program, which is all about making sure you can fulfill your career dreams while also having your little ones in tow and not feeling you have to apologize for it. You can find details about it on latestplus.org.uk. And, you know, in practical terms, you get access to inspirational role models. You'll get a personal senior leader mentor. You get support with practical challenges, such as using, you know, how do you say no, managing your workload. But most importantly, it's going to give you time to think. In fact, it's going to make you think about what you want in your career and family life. And it's going to make you do that with some amazing peers who've all been carefully selected because they want to support other parents to continue to progress their careers, but also they you know, come from diverse backgrounds, but not to be part of a supportive community. So if you want to join and have a chat and be part of something, I guess and the podcast is real, but something realer than the podcast, then please have a look on, on the platform. You can also get involved in our free events. So we have one coming up now, 11th of January, which is about returning to work after maternity, share parental adoption leave. If you are in that situation, it's free, so you can definitely check it out. If you're in that situation or you're Uh, your friends are, then please direct them there. All the details are on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash events. And thank you to everyone who has already supported me uh, with this podcast. I've been 
really pleased to see how many people have shared it. If you believe that the world of podcasting should be slightly less male-dominated and you think it's not okay that 70% or so of the top 10% of shows are run by male hosts, then I would be extremely grateful for your support. If you can share it with three to four friends or leave a five-star review, that would really help with the visibility and I'm super grateful for it. Thank you very much and see you next week.